to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. pastor here at City on a Hill, and I'm really glad that you're here this Labor Day weekend, and uh, anyways, we get a chance to worship Jesus together. And so if you are a guest with us today, we're really glad you're here. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. You'll find a blue card in your seat. It's a connection card. Um, this gives us a couple of ways that we can contact you, name, phone number, email. And for filling out this card, we will uh, give you a $5 gift card to Third Cliff Bakery, which is just down the street here. In my opinion, the best, one of the, the best bakery in the area, I don't know other bakeries hear me say that, but I think it's really good. Uh, and also we'll make a $5 donation to a charity of your choice. We'll send you an email with a list of charities uh, and you just reply that email and tell us which one you'd like for us to send that to and we will do so. So take that card, you can drop it in the black box on your right on the way out. Um, our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. Gospel means good news. Uh, it means the good news that we were once separated from God because of our sin, uh, but now we've been reunited to God through faith in Christ, through his work on the cross, his life, his death, and his resurrection for us. And so if anyone places their faith in Jesus alone, they can be saved. And if you've not entered into that life-giving relationship with God, I would love to talk with you about that after the service on how you could do so. Secondly is community. God created us for relationship. And so because of that, we are the church and we experience this in community groups during the week. We have community groups starting back in two weeks. So be sure to look out for, for signups for that next week and the following week. We'll have some more information on that in a minute. And then lastly, mission. God created us to join him in his mission, to share the good news of, of Jesus, what he's done for us, but also live life shaped by what Jesus did, to demonstrate the gospel through loving and serving our neighbor. Uh, a couple of announcements before we get into the scriptures today. Uh, first is our back to school bash. If you were a kiddo from the ages of like kindergarten through 12th grade, um, we have something for you coming up this Saturday, six o'clock here at the church. Uh, so parents scan that QR code. Uh, this is kind of like prom the promotion fun activity before uh, next Sunday as we promote to our next class. Uh, and so be sure to come to that if you're a kid or a parent. Uh, I mentioned community group signups, which will be the next two weeks on the 11th and the 18th. And so signups will be in the back right here pat, um, toward the back door. And we'll have a map, we'll have a listing of where the groups are, and there will be someone stationed there to help you find the right group for you. So if you're new to City on a Hill or you've been at City on a Hill for a while and you just haven't connected to a group yet, this is the perfect time to do that. So be sure to jump in as those groups are starting in a couple of weeks. And then coming up is our City on a Hill retreat. We get together with our other City on a Hill congregations in Brighton, Somerville, and Brookline once a year up in New Hampshire. We get away, we have a great time, we sing, we laugh, we eat a lot of food, we play, um, and, we, and we also take time to spend with the Lord. And so um, this, the early bird rate ends this Saturday. It doesn't mean you can't go if you don't sign up, you just lose out on some money. So um, be sure to sign up through our event page, coaforesthills.org slash events. And for several people, this is the first thing that they do. Uh, they, they're here for like a month and they go hang out with us in New Hampshire, which sounds a little weird, but we do it. And, uh, and actually it's a great way to get to know people. And so some people have said that the retreat has been the thing that really let them know, hey, this is the church for me because there's people who I can share life with. And so be sure to sign up for that. I'll be going, it'll be a really good time. 
If you have your copy of God's Word with you, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we are going to be looking at uh, a part of the scriptures in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning. So I'm going to read these. And when I'm done, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. I'd ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. So the words will also be on the screen if uh, you don't have your copy of God's Word with you. Matthew 5, starting in verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city and a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Now, last week we had a guest preacher, a guy named Ed Marcel. Um, Ed is the director of the Harbor Church Planning Network, which we are a part of, which exists to help lead, uh, launch, lead, and multiply healthy and thriving churches. And so very thankful for him to come and give us his very dry upstate New York humor. Um, and so if you didn't catch that, be sure to go back and listen to that sermon. And uh, Ed actually kind of helped us form a mini series of sermons. We're, we typically go through books of the Bible. Uh, we just got done with James. We're starting on Genesis next week. And so sometimes those in-between weeks can feel a little bit like when you get invited to a dinner party and somebody says, hey, bring a, bring a side or bring a dessert. And you kind of wonder, am I going to bring like macaroni and cheese and they're going to be serving lasagna? Like, are these things going to fit together? Now, it's all God's word and it all is good, just like at a dinner party. I'll eat lasagna and mac and cheese. I'll, I'll load out on some carbs. It'll be a good time. But it's sometimes it's nice when those things pair with each other. Well, Ed actually helped us kind of form a bit of a mini-series. A couple weeks ago, I looked at a, a personal spiritual vision, like how we grow as followers of Jesus. And last week, Ed helped us frame what it means for us to understand our missionary calling to our city. That we are called as followers of Jesus to be on a mission to the city of Boston. And he looked at Acts chapter 17 and he helped us understand how really we're almost in a pre-Christian culture. And we need to look back to the early church and the way that they engaged in order to give us some insight on how we can live on mission. And so today we're going to be looking at what does that look like for us to do that collectively? What does it look like for us to be a city on a hill? Now, as I read that, you may have, that may have piqued your interest. Like, hey, the name of the church is City on a Hill, and it's here in the text. That is where we got the name, City on a Hill. Uh, when you're trying to name a church, and we were thinking through that a couple of years ago before we became a part of the City on a Hill network, it's a little bit like trying to raise a child. You're looking for something unique, but not weird. And uh, so we were trying to find something that had meaning, and it was unique, but, you know, communicated who we wanted to be. And the name City on a Hill obviously comes from Matthew 5. But if you understand the history of the city of Boston, uh, John Winthrop, Winthrop called the city of Boston a city on a hill. He had this vision that this city would be a city where God was glorified and people would see the good, our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And so we want to be that city on a hill. In order to fulfill our mission, to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life, we are called to look different. It's gonna require us to, to live in such a way that our lives, are, there's something about them that's compelling. To be a people who reach our friends and our neighbors with the hope of Jesus, we have to be that city on a hill. If we wanna be men and women who have been changed by Jesus, we wanna do so in a way that people know where hope can be found. And so to help us understand this calling of what it means to be a city on a hill, I want us to answer two questions this morning. The first question is, is what does it mean to, be, to live as a city on a hill? 
And then secondly, what are the practical implications of this call? So what does it mean to live as a city on a hill? And secondly, what are the practical implications of this call? So what does it mean to live as this city on a hill? We need to understand these words that Jesus is giving us, uh, kind of where they're located in the Bible. They are directly after the Beatitudes. Now, this section of scripture is special to me because as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, uh, next week we'll be two years old as a church. We were crazy enough to start a church in the middle of a pandemic. God was gracious, amen. And uh, we started with the Sermon on the Mount because we wanted people to understand what it means to live the life that God has called us to live. And so Jesus, he starts out in the Sermon on the Mount with what is called the Beatitudes. And this is really kind of Jesus's statement of here's what it looks like to live a good life. Here's what it looks like to, to, for your life to flourish. And that word blessed can actually be, it's the word shalom. It can be translated as flourishing. Jesus is saying, I want you to live in the world in a particular way. And when you live in this way, you're gonna stick out. And so if you go back through the Beatitudes, Jesus says, those who live a flourishing life are those who are poor in spirit. Those who see their need for Jesus. Those who live a flourishing life are those who mourn, who feel deeply. It's those who are meek, who don't seek power, but hold that power under control. Those who are flourishing are those who hunger after righteousness more than anything else. Those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers. This is the way to live that leads to flourishing. And what Jesus is saying is that if you live this way, you're going to stick out because this is not the way of the world. The world doesn't live in a way that we're poor in spirit. We live in a world where we're called to seek after our own riches and acclaim. We don't live in a world where those who mourn are blessed. We live in the, those who are blessed are those who never experience pain or suffering. Those, it's, it's not the meek, but the powerful. It's not those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's the ambitious. It's not those who are merciful. It's those who are unjust. It's not those who are pure in heart, but seem to be wicked and get whatever they want. And Jesus is saying that if you live in this particular way, you will be like salt and light. You will be a city on a hill. And so why does Jesus use this, this terminology? Why does he call us salt? Well, in the ancient world, salt had two purposes. It was meant to give flavor to something. And then secondly, it was meant to preserve something. And so salt has its own taste. If you've ever eaten something and it has too much salt on it, you're like, man, that's really salty. Um, if you eat something and, and, and you eat a lot of salt in a meal, you wake up the next day and you're parched, you feel dehydrated. Well, in the same way, salt has its own flavor, but it enhances the flavor of other things. I didn't know until a couple of months ago that you could put salt on a salad. It tasted amazing. It was incredible. I didn't know you could make lettuce taste better. It does. Put a little salt and pepper on there, a little olive oil. My life has changed. Salt gives flavor. It enhances. Secondly is preservation. It was meant to preserve things. They, did, they had no refrigeration in the ancient world, so they would take meat and pack it full of salt in order to delay decay from setting into that meat so that they could feed people. And so we're called to be salt. We're called to be a type of salt that preserves, that gives flavor to things. And the reason is that salt in the Bible is a metaphor for wisdom. When we live wisely, it's not just for us. It's not just for our own good, it's for the good of other people. When we, we live wisely as followers of Jesus, according to God's word, it makes the world a better place. It enhances what's good. 
It makes our neighborhood a better place. It lifts up our community. When we live in this way, this wise, it preserves and it helps decay not set in. And as we looked at in the book of James several months ago, true wisdom is living according to God's word in such a way that leads to life. And when we live this way, it helps others flourish. It enhances and it preserves. But Jesus gives a warning here. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? How how shall it be restored? Now, this may seem odd to us because if you have table salt, it lasts forever. But in the ancient world, salt that came from the earth could eventually go bad if it wasn't used properly or used in time. It would end up becoming completely worthless because it no longer had any flavor, no longer had any ability to preserve. It had lost its very essence. And so when we stop living wisely, when we stop using the wisdom that God has given us, when we stop living according to what God calls as true and beautiful and good, we lose our flavor. And to lose that taste, the sense of that in Matthew 5 is the idea of foolishness. 1 Corinthians 3, 19 says, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. The way that we lose our saltiness is when we begin to trade the wisdom of God for the foolishness of the world. When we begin to trade what God calls as good in this upside down life we see here in Matthew chapter five and trade it in for a conventional life, for a life that makes sense, for a life that's after our own wisdom, And what often happens as Christians, in order to live this type of life, what we start to do is we start to take the hard things of Christianity. We we start taking the things that are miraculous or the things that are difficult, and we just lower the bar. So we take all the miraculous things of Jesus and say, look, we live in a world where miracles don't happen. So if Jesus didn't walk through a wall or walk on water, there must've been like a wind that day, or there was a, you know, a sliding glass door and somebody just missed it. Like we, we, we try to explain away the miracles of Jesus. We try to explain away the hard call where Jesus tells us to lose our life in order to gain it. And what we're doing when we do these things is we try to make Christianity more palatable, that idea of saltiness, of tastiness. And when we do that, all we do is we strip away everything that makes Christianity unique. We, we take away everything that gives it its flavor. And the reason that we do this is oftentimes I think we do this out of genuine concern. We want people to follow Jesus. And we're afraid that all these things that happen in the Bible are just gonna be a stumbling block for someone to get to Jesus. But oftentimes it's, it's our own fear. It's, it's our fear of, of being mocked. It's our fear of people thinking we're not intelligent, of thinking like, how could you possibly believe those things? And what we begin to do is we begin to shave off the hard edges of Christianity in such a way that we don't get scorned from other people. But what's interesting about Jesus's words here at the end of verse 13, where it says, it being the salt is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What's interesting about that is the word trampled means mockery what ends up happening is the very thing we seek to avoid ends up happening to us. The the, the very thing we seek to avoid, which is the mockery of others, will end up happening to us if we claim to follow Jesus, but yet are unwilling to be salt. Because people will look at our lives and say, why would I give any of my life to this if these people aren't willing to give everything to him? We lose our saltiness. Look, we believe in some stuff that is miraculous. We believe in some stuff that takes faith. 
We believe in a God who created all things. We believe in a God who sent his son to die for our sins, that we don't have to do anything to get back in God's good graces, but he simply gave us his own son. We, we see a God who calls us to give ourselves away, to, to, to lay down everything for his sake. And if we lose that, we lose our saltiness, we lose our wisdom, we lose our voice in people's lives. The second metaphor he uses is that we would be the light of the world. Now, light does a couple of things. The first thing is it compels people. It attracts us. When we see light, we want to go toward light. Now, I'm excited for this time of year because I'm a big college football fan. I love college football. If you're not a college football fan, I'm an Auburn University fan. Um, We have a, look, Auburn, we have really high highs and really low lows. So if this example's not hitting you, just imagine all those years losing as a Red Sox fan. We know all that pain. We've lost with 13 seconds left in a game. I still blame one dude's pulled hamstring on us not winning a national championship. Like we lose a lot. Think of your, your, you know, your favorite Premier League team, or if you're not a sports person, think of that actor or actress who never wins the award, never wins the Oscar. It's every single time. That, that's us. Anyway, that, you know, it's neither here nor there. But my, my school, we have two mascots. We have a tiger, and we have an eagle, and we have a live eagle, because you shouldn't have a live tiger. That's, a, that's an insurance nightmare waiting to happen. But we have an eagle, and they call this eagle a war eagle because they would use it in the middle of war to go from one side to the other because they were fearless. And there's a lot of long story, a lot of history there, but there's a really cool tradition at the, be, at the beginning of every football game, they release this eagle and it circles the field. And everybody's chanting war eagle as it circles the field. And then they draw this bird down to the field with a small piece of meat and it die bombs and everybody goes crazy. But this bird is also attracted to light. It's attracted to fire in particular. And so years ago, I think it was in Salt Lake when they were having the Olympics, they asked, they said, can your mascot fly during the Olympics? And they said, yes, as long as the Olympic torch is out. And they were like, why? Because the bird will fly directly into the torch. There's something about our lives that needs to be compelling, that draws us. And there's something about the gospel of Jesus Christ that draws us, that compels us. It's as Augustine says that God has created us so that our hearts are restless until they find themselves in him. And so even before you become a follower of Jesus, there's something compelling about Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, there should be something attractive and compelling about our lives. We are called to be light in a dark world. We're called to be beacons of hope in our city where there is very little hope. And we should live in a way that's attracted that even if people don't agree with us, they look at our lives and say, there's something different and compelling about it. The second thing that light does is light makes everything clear. We see in verse 15, it says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. We are drawn to light. Our eyes are drawn to light. If you're in a dark room and somebody opens up just a little bit of the curtains, eventually your your eyes will be drawn to that light and it gives light to the entire rest of the house. There's a way that you and I are called to live that gives light to everything else. But there's a tendency and a temptation for us to cover that light in a way that we don't get to, that others don't get to enjoy it. Um, I don't know, has anybody ever had that grandma who had a really nice couch, but always had that plastic cover over the top of it? Some of you are nodding your head before I even said it. You know that grandma, right? The couch is meant to be enjoyed. I mean, it's, been, it's like pearly white. 
It says, why as our, our sins are when they've been cleansed by Jesus, that couch. But she has that plastic cover over the top. And she's missing the point. In the same way, we miss the point when we cover the light that we are called to shine before the world. And I think this is where Christians and churches often go wrong, is we feel like we have to choose between the way we live before the world and the gospel that we preach. We feel like we've got to hide the reason that we're loving and serving people. Missiologist, which, by the way, the word missiologist just simply means a person who studies mission. Um, they say there are two ways that churches and Christians tend to engage. One is a theology of evangelism, and the other is a theology of presence. And so evangelism is, if you grew up around Christianity, means just to tell other people about Jesus, to evangelize, to try to lead them to faith in Christ. The presence, the theology of presence is taking on the form of a servant and living like Jesus and like Jesus incarnated and became human. We go into a community and serve it. And oftentimes the way that Christians treat these two is as if they're mutually exclusive, that you can't do both. And so there certainly are churches that evangelize and never love their community. But what Jesus is talking about here is really a temptation for us. It's really a temptation for us as Christians in the city of Boston to say that the reason that we love our neighbors is just to simply be good people. But what does Jesus say at the end of verse 16? He says that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called to live in such a way that people see us and when we're given the opportunity to talk about why we're doing it, we reflect it back to the Father. We have an opportunity to share why we do what we do. And lastly, Jesus describes us as a city on a hill. This is a call to be distinct. What's unique about a city being on a hill, in fact, is you rarely see this in the ancient world because it wasn't conventional. You would usually put a city right at the foot of a mountain with a river nearby to give protection on one side and be able to you know, see what's going on and to have a water source. It wasn't cheap. You know, if you've ever built a house or thought about building a house, um, it's a lot cheaper to build on flat land than it is on, on top of a hill. It also wasn't co covert. There's no way for them to hide. A city on a hill would literally be seen for miles for travelers, and that's the point. Jesus wants us to be different. He wants us to be distinct, and he wants us to count the cost of living this way because there's something that draws people to that safety and hope. Our holiness, the way we live, is meant to point away from us towards God so that people would see Jesus. Jackie Hill Perry says that the difference of God's holiness is that he's set apart from us because he's different from us and exists differently from us. I'm just like you in terms of humanity, but I'm set apart from the world and that I don't function like the world. I'm not trying to think like the world. I'm, not, I'm trying not to listen to the world. I'm trying to serve the world by introducing Jesus to them. Our holiness is really that I want to be righteous like Jesus and I want to be different. Does your life look different? Does it look wise? Does it look, is it compelling? Does it clearly point people to Jesus? What would it look like for City on a Hill to be a church where we truly were that city on a hill for our neighbors? To be wise and attractive and clear and distinct in the way that we live. The second question to unpack is this, what are the practical implications of being a city on a hill? 
How do we do this practically? The first thing we have to do is we have to address our idols. Now, if you didn't grow up in church, you might be hearing the word idol and thinking that's an odd word. Are you talking about like American idol, just somebody you look up to? That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, But if you did grow up in church, you may be hearing the phrase idol and be thinking about a golden calf. If you look at the Old Testament, there were several objects that people would worship. But really, an, an idol is more than that. Tim Keller describes it as, as an, something that we absolutely require for our happiness and our self-worth. We're looking for something only God can give. And the reality is, is all of us do that. You don't have to worship a physical object to be, a, be an idolater. It's something you, you turn to, it's something you, you hope in, it's something you, you cling to that gives you safety and security or meaning. And if, it, and if it's something other than God, it's idolatry. My wife actually pointed this verse out to me yesterday in Ezekiel 14. And she described in Ezekiel 14, seven, where it talked about how they would take their idols into their hearts, what we cherish, what we love, what we ponder upon, but also said that they placed their idols before their eyes. And you can imagine something sitting right in front of you and it ends up becoming, it's the only thing that you can see. But if you were to wear a mask on your face, or let's say you had a ridiculous handlebar mustache, some of you are imagining yourself with a ridiculous handlebar mustache, that would be what you become known for, right? You're the guy with the handlebar mustache. You're the girl with the fake handlebar mustache. That becomes what you're known for. In the same way, we need to understand that we take our idols into our hearts and we wear them as our identity. And I say our idols because we're a part of Boston. It's not just our city's idols. These are the same particular idols that you and I are tempted to struggle with. I don't know if you're familiar years ago with the water issue in Flint, Michigan, where in the Flint River, there was all sorts of lead that began to poison the water. It, it, you know, 12 people were killed because of that. And if you lived in Flint, Michigan, it didn't matter whether you wanted to or not. If you drank the water, you didn't know about it. You're taking it in without even realizing it. They're taking in poison without even realizing it. In the same way, because of the city we live in, we drink in the same idols. And it wasn't until those citizens of Flint, Michigan knew that they were drinking in lead that they could stop drinking it. In the same way, we have to know the idols of our city that we're tempted to believe in, that we're tempted to hope in in order to lay them down. So what exactly are the idols of our city, of Boston? I borrowed some of these from my friend J.D. Mangrum, who's the pastor at Christ Church Charlestown, doing an incredible job. We're so thankful that they're in the same network of churches as us. Uh, But he describes them like this. He said, there are three that are common to any city. These are money, sex, and power. They tend to be the big three that any city uh, deals with. Uh, Zig Ziglar, who was a great sales expert years ago, said that money won't make you happy, but everybody wants to find out for themselves. No matter how many times we've seen the story, we've read the book, we know that money doesn't lead to happiness, we want want to try it anyway, because we're going to be different. We look to what money can buy. We look to the security that it can bring, the safety that it can bring. And when somebody's in a job that they hate, what do they usually say? Well, I'm doing it for the money. I'm doing it because I want to get paid. Money has a draw on our hearts. Second is power. There's a real draw to power. We want to be around powerful people. We want to be around influential people. If you're on Instagram, what do they call them? Influencers, because they have power over us. If you have power, that means you have choices, you have options. 
Thirdly, as I mentioned, sex. Ronald Rollheiser said that our age has turned sex into a soteriology, in other words, a way to be saved, a doctrine of salvation. In other words, sex isn't perceived as a means toward wholeness. It is identified with wholeness. In other words, we've made it ultimate. We've made it the thing we have to have in order to fulfill ourselves or to express ourselves. It's the very thing that makes us human. It's what gives us an identity. But he mentions that there are two more that are uniquely Boston. These are things that we tend to struggle with more than anything else. And one of those is innovation. We like the idea of doing new things. It's not enough to do something great. It's not enough to go to the best school, but we really want to do what matters. We wanna be on the front edge. We wanna create something. We wanna start something. We wanna do something that's never been done. And then the last one is kind of the opposite of that. We're people who really love history. We love the past here. I mean, I can't tell you how many Revolutionary War tours I've seen around Downtown Crossing. There's always some guy dressed up as Ben Franklin walking around. Like, we love our history. We love our sports history. We love our music history, and we idolize it. And so when we think about those five big cultural idols that we struggle with, how do you recognize which one you struggle with? Eric Mason says that crisis will reveal your, your struggles and your, and your idols. I want you to imagine if there was a house fire. Anybody who's ever experienced a house fire and they go back into their house to get something, they're either going to get a loved one or they're going to get what? Pictures. Back in the day, you actually had physical pictures. Maybe you go grab your laptop now. You go get something that, that is precious to you. That crisis revealed your heart. And in the same way, crisis reveals what our heart loves most. And when we look at those five, which one of those keeps you up at night? Which one of those are you afraid to lose? Which one of those gives you a pit in your stomach? And as we look at the five of those, none of those are bad. They're all actually good things. But if these are what we look to to prove ourselves or find our meaning, what happens is that we lose our saltiness, and we've hidden our light. And so it's not just about tamping these down or just, or just ignoring them, but asking when, when these things have been revealed in my heart, what are they really saying? What are they saying about what I really want the most? How do they actually fail to give me what I want? And how is God the one who fulfills it? So we need to address our idols, but secondly, you have to redirect your desires. So if idolatry is worship and worship is what you desire most, then idolatry really, really is a worship issue. So we, it's what we give our attention to. And we're all giving our heart's attention to something. So imagine it's kind of like a fire, fire hose that's always pointed in some direction. What we're doing is we're taking that and redirecting it towards something good and godly. Each of these is an idol. Each of these idols reveals a good desire that's gone rogue. And so when we redirect these desires, we begin to see we start to live wisely and attractively and clearly and distinctly to the glory of God. So instead of money, what if we turned our hearts toward generosity? What, what if we were generous people willing to give away versus hoard what God gives us? 
as a city on a hill, as a church, I want us to be a church that gives so freely of its money that people begin to notice. We give a lot of our money away to foreign missions, to, to local missions, and to just love and serve our neighborhood. And it makes an impact. Sometimes I don't know that you always see that, but I get to hear stories. So this past week, I was talking with my connection over at English High School, who we serve uh, a lot. Uh, we work mostly with their ESL program. We've helped set up a food pantry and done different things there. And I was talking to my connection there, and I said, she said, you know, I want you to know that attendance is up 10% this year. And this is one of the least served schools in the country, or in the, sorry, in the city. And I said, well, well, tell me like, why do you think that is? And she said, I think a big part of it is because of churches like you and because of partners like you and your investment, that people are starting to notice what God's doing here. And also that our staff is starting to get encouraged and wanting to stay. That stuff makes a difference. What if we were generous what if instead of seeking power, we committed to humble service? Again, what does salt do? It stops decay. What if we were to look at our neighbors and our, our city and our friends and ask, where's the decay? Where's the brokenness? And we pressed in there. What if instead of sex, we gave ourselves to true intimacy? We all desire love and affection. What if City in a Hill was a place of warm friendship and care? Who, who can you befriend? Instead of innovation, what if we gave ourselves to kingdom ambition? What if, our what, what if we had a vision for what God could do in our neighborhood or on our block or in our apartment complex, that he would do something new, that he would restore something? What if instead of history, we were future focused? It's really easy to talk about past glory. It's really easy to talk about what God was doing in your life personally. You know, a year ago, maybe it was a mission trip or that really sweet season where you were in God's word. Chuck Lawless talks about how that's actually a dangerous place to be in when you're more focused on what God did instead of seeing that as fuel for what God could do. And it's the same thing for our church. I don't want us to get, we're only two years old. I don't want us to look at some glory day and that be what we hope. And I want us to have eyes fixed forward on what God could do over the next five, 10, 20 years. What would happen if a church loved our neighbors, shared the gospel, made disciples, planted churches, all to the glory of God? They, our city would see our good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. There are people that God, you haven't even met yet, that God is going to use you to lead to Jesus. And so the question for us is, are we willing to be salt? Are we willing to be light? Are we willing to be that city on a hill, a people who are wise and compelling and clear and distinct set apart to the glory of God. So as we wrap up, what is your next step? What is God calling you to do? Where's God calling you to press in? Maybe it's one of these idols that you're struggling with. Maybe you need to confess that to a friend. Maybe there's an area of service God is calling you to press into. Or maybe this morning you're realizing that you need Jesus. You're realizing that you want the life that Jesus talks about. And when we see this, when we see the light that Jesus has called us to, like any good leader, he's not calling us to something he didn't go into before us. Jesus laid his life down for our sake. He, he is the one who came, who gives flavor to life. He's the one who saves us from death. He is the light of the world, beckoning us to come home to the Father through his work through the cross for us. Let's pray.